Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Empowered Patient Radio Show. My name is Hari Kulsa, and I am your host on this wonderful show. This show is about giving you the listener tips on how to navigate the healthcare system and be an empowered patient. That's not always an easy task. Today, we're really lucky. We have an amazing show. The title of the show today is Caregiver Stories, Finding the Right Care. And we have a wonderful guest with us. But before we get to our inspiring guest, Ken Farberstein, an incredible patient safety advocate, I'd like to remind everyone to use sunscreen. It has been crazy hot. And... The sun has been beating down on everyone, and it's very, very important that you use sunscreen. Now, the thing about sunscreen, the FDA just recently changed their rules to be uh, a little more uh, in line with what really works. So when you go to get your sunscreen, look on the back and make sure it has UVA protection and UVB protection and that you're getting at least 30 SPFs protection. You don't want any less than 30. You need both UVA and UVB to to get adequate protection. So I really recommend it because melanoma cancer is on the rise. Now before again, before we get to to Ken, I'm going to give you the healthcare navigation tip of the day. Or I should say the month. I recently ran into something new that the insurance companies are uh, using in their policies. And it's very concerning to me because people really don't understand it. It's so new and it's really being toted as a way to save the consumer to save money. But what I find for the consumer is that it's awfully confusing and concerning. What it is is that the insurance companies have created uh, a three-tier policy to uh, where hospitals, doctors, facilities, any kind of medical uh, facility is ranked, and they're ranked by how they that their cost to the insurance company and how much they've negotiate for reimbursement. Now what's happened is is that the first tier, which is called enhanced tier, you think enhanced means the most, you know, the one that is the the the, the most expensive. But it actually doesn't work that way. The enhanced group are those that charge the less that the insurance company has to reimburse. And the next one is premium, and the next one is basic. And basic is the one that is the highest. Now, what ends up happening is that if you use, if you choose, and you can use any of those because they're all in network, but if you choose to use the lower one, the the enhanced, which is lower cost of reimbursement, then your deductible is much lower. It runs about, say, $50. If you choose to use the highest one or basic, your deductible goes up to as high as $450 or $450 or more. And not just that, but your co-pays can go up, your co-insurance payment can go up. So this means even though you have a choice, if your doctor, and the doctors don't even understand this new policy, if they send you to a hospital that isn't in the enhanced, tier unknowingly then you're going to have to you're going to be billed a high deductible what also has happened is that those hospitals that are in the basic which is the highest you know the cost is the highest to the insurance company are the big hospitals or the big specialty hospitals so you have to know that if you're going to go to a big hospital or a specialty hospital, if, if your doctor sends you to the best specialist in your area and it's in a big hospital, well, this, uh, then you may end up paying more money, even though it's in, in network. It's very confusing. 
I mean, you have the choice, and most of the enhanced network tiers or, or lower ones are local because they've negotiated low reimbursement with the insurance companies. But what ends up happening is recently, as a sign of mine had, they ended up getting a, a, a high a, a bill from from the hospital as well as the insurance company saying this is your deductible, and it was. It was quite a shock. So just be aware, I'm finding most of these policies are attached to HMOs, not necessarily PPOs, but in some, yes. And just make sure, again, I can't emphasize enough, that you read your policy. It's very important. And as people are finding these policy, a lot of these policies changed as of uh, January 1st. And people weren't, well, they feel they weren't notified. So just take a look at your policy and find if that's applicable, applicable to you. Okay, enough of me talking here. Let's welcome, today we have an amazing guest, Ken Farbstein. He's an inspiring patient safety advocate. He is passionate about creating safe, the safest environment possible in hospitals for patients. He has been instrumental in putting a spotlight on the issues surrounding patient safety and working with hospitals to make necessary changes. His website, patientsafetyblog.com, is a must-read with real stories on safety errors and problems. He is president and founder of Patient AdvoCare, a company working with patient advocates to keep a family member safe and healthy during times of crisis. He has served two terms as the president of the uh, Consumer Health Quality Council of Healthcare for All, and he has spent many tireless hours working to get patient safety laws enacted in Massachusetts. And the best news is that in April, he, he published a book, and it's called Getting Your Best Healthcare, Real World Stories for Patient Empowerment. What an honor to have him with us, and without further ado, I want to welcome Ken to our show. Hi, Ken, are you there? Hi. Hi. Well, thanks very much. That was a very gracious and an amazing introduction. I really appreciate it. I feel like I didn't even say enough because you, you've done incredible work. So, um, And congratulations on the release of your new book. That was quite an accomplishment. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's uh, a couple months back now. Yeah, it was published by Dorland Health, which usually publishes medical textbooks and directories, and they started around Thanksgiving of last year. They started something called the Professional Patient Advocate Institute, and so the Institute uh, published the book. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and we'll get more about the book as we go through today, but um, I guess it's part of my first question to you is, um, you know, I'm very interested in how you got involved in patient safety and patient advocacy. Can you talk a little bit about your journey and and how you became involved? Sure, sure. I've I've had first uh, been I've been a consultant in this field for about 15 years or so. I've had a consulting practice. I started back in the mid 90s and uh, advising hospitals and health maintenance organizations and medical groups, uh, more recently addiction treatment centers, uh, alcohol, drug treatment, and, and mental health centers, on ways to improve their quality uh, while limiting costs. And so that's been, I've been doing that, uh, you know, for many years already. Uh, and that was capped, I guess, the, the biggest single project that I worked on was a three-year effort uh, working with six hospitals here in the eastern Massachusetts area. And the uh, the president of the hospital system had initially said that he wanted to have us be, have the hospital system become the safest place to get medicine in the country. And then after they hired me to help them do that and to guide them in doing that, he said it, he wanted them to be the safest place in the world to get medication. So we worked on that <laughs> for three years. Yeah, that's a big a task. <laughs> Not for the faint of heart. And uh, he said that he thought it would take eight or ten years. And so he worked real hard with the six hospital teams. And, you know, they had interdisciplinary uh, teams at each hospital of pharmacists and nurses and doctors and risk manager of the hospital. And we emplaced uh, best practices and spread them throughout the hospital system. So different ways whereby doctors can order medicine 
and the ways that pharmacists would dispense the medications and the ways that nurses would administer the medications to patients and the way that errors in, in all that uh, were reported. So they're best practice for each of those uh, categories. And so we worked with them, and, and then three and a half years later, uh, we won the, the what was then the biggest award in hospital medication safety, uh, the premier award after a national competition that was judged by the, uh, the judges were mostly members of the uh, Institute for Healthcare Improvement's board of directors. So I was just on the top of the world, and I thought, you know, it couldn't get any, any better than this. And, and uh, as, a, as a hospital, you know, and so I hear you're laughing in the background because you know the end of the story. And, uh, and you know, for a consultant, I thought, wow, my, my career was set. You know, this is what I would do. I would help hospitals reduce errors and, you know, and, and do good and, and do well at the same time. And, uh, and, and I, I had some... Uh, some resistance that in, in doing that and, and that people really, I found, of course, don't, what other people knew already, you know, they don't really like to talk about medical errors and shun the, the whole topic, the whole area, and that it was really like mm-hmm. my being an anthrax salesman, a very enthusiastic one, you know, and when, <laughs> uh, you know, when getting a no, oh, I don't want to talk about, you know, anthrax, or, you know, that then I would, yeah. you know, uh, be even more enthusiastic and ratchet up the volume, and of course that doesn't, you know, that didn't work. Um, and then, so was uh, it was it the the medical profession that wasn't interested, or just people? You know, even patients didn't want to go back and talk about it. Well, as I was approaching a uh, hospital uh, hospital executives, really, and, and executives, so okay. I think, yeah, and you know, it's a, this crazy reimbursement system, which knock on wood, we may be changing, but but right now, um, you know, no no one in hospitals tries to make an error, but. But if they do, they often get more money uh, because if the patient has to stay for extra days or, or you know, so that, that sometimes those, those days are, a lot of times uh, those are billable days or the extra care to reverse whatever happened uh, is billable. So, uh, oh, how nice. Of, how good. <laughs> oh, it's completely backwards, right. And, and no one's trying to make an error, but... But it does keep the, the uh, chief financial officers and the chief executive officers, I think, from wanting to invest a lot in reducing errors, because and and they think that they're and they're doc, you know and because you know doctors are are so uh, are so smart and uh, well-meaning and dedicated as are the nurses and, and the other clinicians and so uh, that that the CEOs know that and as a result they that that there's this kind of not sense of denial or, or lack of awareness about error rates off very often. Now that that may be starting to change uh, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you have uh, a story about working with one hospital CEO or executive that you you got to change that saw you not for the anthrax guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, these these six hospitals did quite well, and they they really uh, changed you know quite a lot. Um, but then mm-hmm. but then later on. Um, uh, and, and so uh, um, later on, though, a few months later, uh, my wife's father, I was a very healthy man in his late 70s, and uh, he went into a hospital in Connecticut. They, they live in a suburban Connecticut. And uh, he was going to have a hernia repair, which, you know, is the most minor operation that you can have. And, uh, right. Um, and then two days later, he had died from a very rare uh, complication of it. So, and oh, we were all wow. just shocked. So it was just it, we were just shocked into you know uh, um, mm-hmm. and uh, couldn't you know couldn't think straight. And so we didn't like most other people in that situation. We didn't ask for an autopsy, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and it it remained pretty confusing and, and pretty unclear as to what had really caused the error. Um, uh, and later we we kind of figured it out, but but the, but but uh, you know for months we were really immobilized by it. And uh, well, this must have been I, a shock I, to you that you'd been working on this with these hospitals, and then this happened to you. I mean, it must have just been like here you are in it. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I'm reminded of a, a talk that Don Berwick gave at the when he was leading the Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, at one of these December forums um, several years ago. Um, because Don is a pediatrician, you know, a doctor himself, of course, and uh, the son of a doctor. 
and his elderly father had uh, been in a hospital, and Don told the story of how his care just uh, went downhill and down and down and down, and, and even Don Berwick was not able to get the right wheelchair for his father. And so here, you know, you had a, a doctor who was a patient and one of the most eminent doctors in the country who was his son and an advocate, and yet and they were not able to get the right wheelchair for his father. So there's this moment, and so Don had said that that, that he that that incident had radicalized him, and he used that. Yeah, and just for people, listeners, Don Berwick is the head of the, uh, uh, what we call the CMS, the Medicare department, right? That That's who you're speaking exactly. of? Exactly, for the whole country, yes. exactly right. He runs, yes, and for so the, country, to the extent yes. anyone does run, any normal mortal can run the whole Medicare program uh, and the Medicaid program for lower-income people. So uh, that that he is the head of of, uh, of that organization, um, and has brought the same idealism and purpose and you know uh, drive uh, uh, and methods knowledge of, of methods you know there. Uh, so which I'm very and so I'm optimistic that he can make a lot of changes. But the, the point being that that uh, that in these situations that sometimes we're just. Uh, it's like we're we're wrapped in cotton wool or, or you know in a straitjacket or something, making it very difficult to uh, act well in the moment. I think which is one. So what did they why... say to you? What what I mean? Here you are. Do you did, did they call you? I mean, did, what did what did the hospital say? I mean, what 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 was your experience at this moment? You know, besides the absolute shock, did they give you? Did you say it was an error? What 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 happened? No, they they didn't mention the word error at all. Uh, then or, or later. So the it, M word, <laughs> the E which, word, uh, I should say. <laughs> you know, yeah, and uh, that which is true in a lot of cases. And so, on the Consumer Health Quality Council, uh, where I've worked for several years as a, a you know, pro bono work uh, for I think about uh, four or five years now. Uh, you know, many of the members, for many of the members, that's one of the key sources of trauma, is that. It's the aftermath of it and the lack of an apology and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the the disregard or the ignoring of it or the, the the effort to turn away from it and not to learn from it is, is quite painful. And, and that, uh, that uh, fuels a sense of anger in a lot of people. And so for some of the most prominent national activists in the country, that mo- has motivated them in a big way. Now here in Massachusetts, the uh, I just heard yesterday that the uh, we have a bill. So so the uh, in my work in the Consumer Health Quality Council, that we encourage legislation for patient safety, and so um, we have a number of bills that we have tried to you know that we're trying to get through the Massachusetts legislature and passed by our governor, Deval Patrick, and I just got some good news yesterday that a bill which includes uh, the ability for clinicians to apologize, you know, directly to patients without risking uh, a lawsuit for it, that that bill has, is being reported out of committee, which is a, a, a major hurdle. It's a real milestone in the passage of, of what we hope will become a, a new law, you know, uh, some months so, down So the let's law. just back up. I, I mean, I think that's really incredible. To your, I mean, again, I just want to tell my li- the listeners that, you know, you've done amazing work, and we hopefully will get to some of the other things, laws you've gotten, you've worked on to get, you know, with others to get changed. But this gives, this is a law that could, with, could give a clinician the opportunity to have a real moment with a family when there's been a, a mistake, whether it's a medication error or a surgical error or a diagnostic error that they will not have the fear of a lawsuit. Exactly. That that's precisely the, wow. the point of it. That's that's the whole purpose. Because, you know, and uh that it, it really will help the family to get a sense of closure. I mean I know that word is really overused sometimes, but but mm-hmm. but people grieve and you know mourn and then they, you know, they they do have lives and they they do get on with their lives as they should, and it it just it helps heal an injury that doesn't have to happen if th- this apology can occur. Now that's also uh, an injury, if you will, in the doctor or nurse who committed the error, that that they feel overwhelmed with with shame and self-loathing and you know, uh, and mm-hmm. so for them to be able to apologize can 
clear the air for them. Um, there's a uh, so this uh, this precisely was um, one of the the uh, the real achievements of uh, an organization called NITS here in the Boston area. They're in, based in uh, Chestnut Hill, part of Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, the MITFS stands for Medically Induced Trauma Support Services, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. founder of that, Linda Kenny. Uh, had had uh, it's, it's a very long story which I'll, I'll really abbreviate uh, quite briefly here, but had uh, had, had a, a medical error and her anesthesiologist, uh, Dr. Rick Van Pelt, had um, come to to recognize it, to to see it, to apologize for it, and they've created a real and it actually brought the two of them in, in an odd way much closer, and and they have now. Uh, made an organization of that uh, from that mm-hmm. idea that this kind of partnership and forgiving and openness by doctors you know with patients is really healing all around and so Linda has created this organization which which provides uh, in effect group therapy for the victims of medical error the family kind of the the byproduct or the, the mm-hmm. bystander victim of the medical error mm-hmm. Uh, to you know, counsel them in their grief and help them to to talk through it and and so forth. Um, but this is you know the, the power that an apology. So the apologies have this tremendous power, and and we're hopeful that if if the law is passed, still a big if, that if the law is passed, that uh, that kind of healing will become a lot more common, and that that staff and hospitals then once they are aware of errors like that, then they can learn from them and learn how to prevent them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think my question here is, uh, I, I, the education needed. You know, coming myself also, coming from you know being a nurse practitioner, coming from the medical background, and um, you know, it's it, it's it's really great. And I can just you know, but it's going to take a lot of education and somewhat less some level of trust that 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 people won't sue. I mean, because you know the way this country is. But um, I guess it depends on how the law is written, you know, the specifics of the law. Um, and I, I think it's great. It's great because even when I was in practice, we, you know, you lived your life worrying that that one thing you were going to do was not correct for the client, for the patient, you know. So, you know, it 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 is stressful for on the medical side also. So I, I'm like, I didn't know that law was there, but I'm so grateful to you, Ken. It is, well, <laughs> it's not it's that. not official yet. So if people want to call in Massachusetts, I know. Massachusetts can you know call your legislator and and. Uh, you know, and and uh, encourage them to support it. it. It's really it's not a partisan issue. You know, this is really not an right. issue. And with no. disagree. So uh, so it's an easy yes, I think, uh, for legislators. Yeah. Here in well, it is politics, you know. so nothing's an easy yes, as we're seeing right now. That's right. That's right. The uh, absolutely <laughs> don't want to take it for granted. But you know, it, at so at uh, Beth Israel uh, Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. That there was an uh-huh. example of that, of how that kind of openness was created. So, um, a doctor there who was a leader in in patient safety efforts, uh, Dr. Saul Weingart, who's now a, a vice president at Dana Farber uh, Cancer Institute, but uh, had had you would ask uh, the house staff, the uh, residents and interns, if they had encountered any kind of barrier to care. And asked it in a very non-judgmental, open-ended way. So, barrier to care uh, was kind of a euphemism because the error word is still kind of hard for people to deal with sometimes. You know, um, but and that would evoke a lot of of, uh, of comments about barriers, which were indeed errors that the young doctor had been involved in or had witnessed one way or another. And so that created a lot of openness, which you know. And then once the errors can be talked about, then we can figure out how to how to prevent them. Uh, another thing mm-hmm. that the same hospital did was to set out a, a journal, just a, a blank a notebook, a pat line notebook page, uh, full of uh, you know line pages, um, out for people to to write uh, when uh, for the nurses to write about when they would uh, uh, see some um, some barrier to care again, kind of a, a euphemism, and that mm-hmm. this was a way that they they could write out in whatever detail they wanted to. And then, you know, so as a consultant, I mean, usually you often see a real resistance to change. You know, people just don't want to change, and you have Mm -hmm. to figure out how to, you know, um, Mm -hmm. how to pass that. But in this case, it was my, you know, running after them and saying, well, you know, that once they became aware of these errors, you couldn't stop them from making changes to safeguard the system so that those errors, this was on a... uh, 
uh, they treat a lot of cancer patients on this floor in oncology for you know mm-hmm. so that uh that you could, we couldn't slow them down or stop them from making changes you know uh it it just reversed oh, the so whole once once they grabbed the reins they 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 it opened up a whole new way of thinking for them exactly once they were able to talk about it and the shame and the the resistance you know the once it was possible for them to to talk about it in a way where they would not get punished for it that their own you know that that then the gates opened you know and then and of course they don't want to make errors and so they would be very eager to make changes you know it just completely mm-hmm. changed the the whole psychology of change and so i'm hoping that on a on a broader state level that the same thing will occur with apologies you know that this this can happen in other hospitals as well well let me today i um i was at uh beth israel uh, with a client who was uh, going in for surgery, and I always go as a patient advocate. I like to go uh, pre-op, so I'm there to make sure everything was hap- you know, goes correctly. And I was, you know, because you were going to be on, we were going to talk about patient safety, and I've been thinking about it more. I was much more observant today, and I started, you know, I, I was looking around, and I was thinking, well, I know what I'm looking at. You know, I know what all the, you know, the instruments are. I know what a going, you know, a good, an IV going in well looks like. I know, you know, watching people wash their hands and if they're putting the gloves on correctly. You know, I know all this. And I'm wondering what, you know, what, what kind of, what can people do to become more cognizant of patient safety, those issues? You know, I mean, you've worked with this. What, what? I guess, what are some tips, or what, what? How, how can you advise people to approach this kind of? I guess, stay safe in these kind of situations. Right. Well, so how, how would I advise patients and their, their families? Yeah. How would you advise, you know, you have, yeah. Uh, yeah, a patient, you know, well, someone who's going in for surgery? What would you say? <laughs> right. Well, well, I think you're, the example that you gave is a good case in point that you should get an advocate who will be with you. And that uh, now every nurse is, you know, in, in nursing school, they learn to be advocates, and so they'll insist, well, I'm, you know, I'm a patient advocate. Yes, yes, they are, and you need your own, I think, and whether that's a you right. know, family member or a professional, you know, who can help because there's so much going on in a very short, intense burst of time, that, you know, and that the patient, is, you know, himself or herself may or well, you know, that may be under anesthesia or so anxious they can't really think straight or, you know, so we know you're really not your best self, you know, under that kind of stress. So, uh, you know, you need to recruit a friend or a, uh, or a professional beforehand. And in my book, I give some advice on how you find, you know, people like that um, and how you can, the kind of questions you can ask them and, and so forth. Um, but and the other is that that you now you yourself can as the patient you you can do some things as well. So you know that that you're not going to be under anesthesia most of the time, and you can certainly you know when the nurse comes by with your medication that you can certainly ask and you should. Well, what what are these pills? And go you know tell me one by one what they are, what they're for, because that way mm-hmm. you you may well intercept an error for you may prevent an error from happening. You know, for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for so, that also, it might be a good idea for a family member, if, if they don't have an advocate, but a, a family member, to have a list of the, uh, of the pills. You can ask the, ho- the nursing staff or the floor for uh, an ongoing list of the pills, and the patient can have them to double check. Also, right? Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The, you should, and in fact, you should carry a list. You should make a list like that as, as soon as you turn off your radio or turn off your computer uh, after this broadcast if you don't have one already and you know and keep it in your wallet or your purse so that you know so just in case of emergency that that uh, that that would or you would have it you know in the hospital so and that's so that that would make it easier for hospitals to do there's a process called they call it medication reconciliation and so they'll make sure that the meds that you've been on you know, at home, uh, when you go to the hospital, that you'll be on, that you'll be on, you know, those as appropriate, and that then the list of orders for medications, prescriptions that you get for when you're discharged from the hospital, that you'll also, you know, uh, that it will be clear unto, as to which of those you're going to take and for how long and whether or not to resume each of the meds that you've already had. So, yeah, in the hospital and before and after, 
it's, it's very important. Okay, so a, so what happens if if you if you you're the patient and you're the nurse comes in and you say what's this for and they say blah 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 and this is the name and you say I don't take that. I mean, I, well, what what's the best way to deal with a situation like that? Do you, have you helped someone with that or you know what's your advice on that? Well, there you can you know then you do the patient does need the uh, the chutzpah the nerve. Uh, to say that or to say, excuse me, uh, can you, you know, are you sure that's what that's for? And then to get into a conversation about, well, who ordered that and, and why and are you sure? Um, they can ask to look at the medication administration record. That's called the MAR, uh, which, mm-hmm. which is supposed to list, you know, what, what drugs the, the patient is supposed to get and which ones uh, they have gotten. Okay. Um, you uh-huh. know, that other, so, you know, it may be that uh, that you know, and so if you're if you're really sharp, you know, you can uh, you can catch some of these things. Um, uh, one of the uh, uh, in one case, there was one example of that. But I think you know, maybe a better case would be um, with uh, the actor Dennis Quaid. Uh, had uh-huh. he, he and his wife uh, had twins, and um, uh-huh. when they were. When they were uh, just just a few days after being born, that uh, they were given heparin, which is a very powerful blood, you know, Harry is a very powerful blood thinner. Um, right. And they were they were given big overdoses of it, um, and so you know if you and it and they nearly died. They they didn't and they're okay now, but it was a very close call. It was definitely a a wake up call. Um, and Dennis Quaid has actually become pretty active, and you know as a result of all this. Um, but uh, you know, so you you can catch things like that um, if you're really alert, or if your advocate is is there, uh, and and prevent things like that from happening. And he was alert, and he he caught it. How he just noticed there was something wrong with his his babies. How um, did, how did, yeah, I because they I, caught it right. They they caught that there was something. It was. Wrong. Um, I, I I believe it was it was intercepted. Yeah, it's been this happened several years ago, and it's um. It was one of the older stories in the blog uh, um, about that, but um, okay. I'd have to look up the. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to uh, refresh my memory about that particular uh, case. But they questioned uh, but it. Was, Bottom line is, however they they saw it, they questioned it. And I think the point. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that if you see something that you know uh, your family member is taking a medicine and it's making them either so lethargic or something's wrong, question it. It's okay to question what's happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you get you'll get better care. But yeah, if you do. You'll get but, better uh, care. What it, right. because they'll know you ha ha explain that. That's a good point. Well, be, <laughs> People don't more, realize that. Right. Well to be more conscious of it. Right. That you'll that uh you know, a lot of Errors are, are set up by the way the hospital uh, that systems work, but others. But there is a role for mindfulness, you know, for um, uh, for people being aware of what they're doing, or if they're if they're rushed or mm-hmm. somewhat careless, you know, um, then errors are more likely. So if they can, uh, you know, be more aware of it, and and if they know that you're going to ask questions, then mm-hmm. then uh, you know, um, that's that's um you're much more likely to get better care that way so um there you know there there were some uh uh some babies that had been uh you know in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit um uh, premature babies in a uh, you know in an indiana hospital where um they had an error very similar to the quades error um but these uh, but but these died. That that actually that a pharmacy technician uh, had. There's a, so I should back up a little bit. Um, in a lot of hospitals, the um, uh, pharmacy prepositions drugs in medication cabinets, special machines that are located on the nursing floors. You know, right on the patient floors. And those, so if you imagine like an automatic teller machine, you know, an ATM cash machine where you type in. Uh, a password to identify yourself, and then you can get cash out, or a candy machine. Kind of, you know, this is basically that concept, but with drugs. And there are different mm-hmm. organizations that make them. So Pixis makes them, and you know, some other companies make them as well. Um, and you know, so they say, well, 
to err is human, but to really screw up requires a computer, right? So <laughs> if the, you know, so so not to, I mean, maybe I should be careful about uh, making jokes and, you know, and um, uh, stories like this, what, uh, you know, stories really which which are not funny, but um, because when right, the pharmacist yeah. then puts the wrong medication in the drawer and then and closes it, locks it, you know, uh, and then it's ready for nurses. Nurses then type their password in and then open the drawer and pull out the wrong medication. They think it's right because the pharmacy technician has put it there. And so mm. it, that that's a way that multiple errors get set up. And so right, they, right. they didn't have the Quades, you know, or their family member or whoever it was who interceded and found that. So that's the, I guess that's just to... Uh, put an exclamation mark on that point about checking the medications, you know, in the hospital. Right, right, right. And what other um uh what what other ways would you uh, are there in to be alert in the hospital? I mean, uh there's medication which is a big one. I mean, everybody gets some usually some form of medication. But there are other areas in the hospital. Um I don't know, cleanliness right. well, or yeah. Right. Well, one's a uh, one's an example. Um, you know, from when my son was born, uh, he's now 21 and nice and healthy. You know, so as I'll tell people in advance, there's a happy ending to the story. You know, but um, <laughs> okay. So, but not to not to freak people out here. It's hard. You know, it's hard to hear stories about medical errors that uh, you know that are that are often uh, really tragic. But the uh, so um, my wife had gone into premature labor at uh, about eight and a half weeks before. Uh, the baby was due, and the labor, and they we got her to the hospital right away, and they they uh, suspended the. They were able to give her a a drug that stopped the labor, you know, and it left her mm-hmm. like her heart was sure. beating at a really rapid rate for butylene, and uh, you know, so it was not a comfortable place to be in because you know your heart is going really rapidly for several days. So for seven or eight days, uh, you know, she was there, um, and so around her belly they had put a. Uh, a belt, a special um, uh, kind of belt, which is right. attached to a machine to measure the, uh, you know, the uh, contractions. Baby uh, of her, yeah. of her Oh, the contractions. Okay, yeah, yeah. So the electrocardiograph, and it it would have a uh, a pen, you know, it's telemetry, which means a, a pen moves on a piece of graph paper, and the graph paper on a on a ribbon kind of, you know scrolls along over time, and you, you can see the marks that this pen ha- makes. And mm-hmm. I remember asking one of the young residents, you know, um, about the rhythmic, uh, that they, they, I would notice that there was a peak every once in a while. And she had told me, well, not, not too, very confidently, oh, that's fine not to worry about it. Well, it, you know, so, um, you know, you can, you, uh, depending on your clinical background, you know, if if you uh, can see your test results now, in this case, if you can see the the uh, telemetry, you know, the the graph as it's going, uh, or if you see your own X-rays, you know, see your own MRI, and you can not that you're going to know how to interpret them, but you can make sure that it's the right patient, you know, that it's your name. Uh, right, 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 right. Uh-huh. Okay, and so forth. So e- each of these things, you know, that the time it's the right time and it's the right reason and the, the right place was you got the right test and so forth. So you can certainly check all of these things. Now, in my wife's case, the the doctors were very sleep deprived. That's the only explanation I can think of because it was at a Harvard teaching hospital, so they had to be really smart, right? You know, and yet they they were just so sleepy and just indulged in so much groupthink. They missed the fact that my wife was in labor, and oh. uh, so she was actually in labor all night long without any pain medication for that reason. And so, oh. I mean, I've never, you know, so uh, I mean, um, you know, so you can imagine what that was like. Um, now it didn't affect my son, you know, and there was no lasting damage to my wife, but but we do remember that that happened, and it was really, you know, it, it was really a goof. It was really a, an error, you know. So so uh, nobody was just looking at it because they, they just forgot, apparently, essentially? Apparently not, or they, they, well, they thought that it was gas pains. They, they thought that it was, oh, you know, yes. abdominal pain. Yes. But it was rhythmic. Oh, yes. Stuff. Rhythmic. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, like surprisingly rhythmic. And so... You know, um, so 
so I, you know, we, we got we got excellent care in some ways at this Harvard Teaching Hospital, and yet this this error happened as well, and we're very mindful of that, of of both the good and the bad, and and I know that I, you know, that that under that kind of exhaustion and groupthink and and so forth, that uh, you know I might have made a similar error, I suppose, but it's still. It, it still creeps you out, you know, and it happens to you. But uh, anyway, my son was born even at a reasonable hour of the day, about 4.30 in the afternoon, which never happens with babies. But right, least, right, right, right. So, so part of the issue here is that um, if you don't think something's going, you know, it's okay to question what's going on. Like sometimes I'll tell people, just ask questions. You know, uh, if you think things are not moving, you know, go to the front desk or go to the nurse's station or call the doctor or call the person, if it's the middle of the night, the person on call and let them know you're here and you're worried or you're here or what is this? You know, my my partner is, you know, or, you know, I've been throwing up for, you know, 24 hours and now they're not moving. What should I do? You know, oh, you, know, you want them to say go to the hospital or something or they want them to listen. And I think that's an important part of being an empowered, you know, an empowered patient or a empowered person is knowing that it's okay to ask the questions. And I think that's what people forget. They get intimidated. Well, I'm not a doctor. But you can see when something's not right, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, it's right. And, and, in fact, and so it's a key lesson, I think. That's, I really want to underline that. Uh, you know, please ask questions. It's part of of being a partner in your own care, uh, and and specifically um, now, uh, also now in Massachusetts, that we now have a law that through the Healthcare for All's work and the uh, the work in the uh, Consumer Health Quality Council about rapid responses, uh, rapid response methods, and that's a that's a technical term, rapid response methods. That it's basically what it sounds like. So, um, and you can ask to have a, a rapid response and, um, for a family member or even, I suppose, for yourself. But um, And uh, thanks to a new law that's now been on the books for a couple of years. Um, and it, now this is, a, this is a requirement in the other 49 states uh, through the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations. That's the, the key body that accredits hospitals uh, formally. Um, but they've kind of watered it down and backed off, and they've made the wording much more vague over the years. So it's, it's not as strong of a, of a requirement in the other states as it is here in Massachusetts. Um, but in Massachusetts, so it's important that people know about this because a lot of cons- very few consumers know about the law. Um, but it, it says that a family member or the patient, him or herself, can ask for a formal uh, rapid response method by the hospital. Um, and if they are, are concerned uh, that their family member is going downhill in, in, uh, in certain ways. So the, it, it, and the reason for this is that it turns out that they've done studies of people who have had heart attacks you know, in the hospital, and they found right. that there are some, as you know this as a nurse practitioner, Harry, Harry that, uh, that there are some warning signs four to six hours in advance. And that if the warning right. signs are tended to promptly, then you can get the person on a whole different path, and and they won't have a heart attack. Okay, right. Um, right. and uh, so those signs are, you know, so um, it's about the the heart rate, uh, the blood pressure, uh, confusion, um, uh, the breathing rate and pulse. Now you're not going to know, you know, um, it, it, most family members are not going to, they're not going to measure the pulse of their nor do they really necessarily need to. But but if you see, you know, sudden confusion, which is sustained for a while, you know, that's a sign to be aware of. That's a sign to be alarmed about and to ask and to ask about. So they, right. they should specifically and, ask about that. Right, and ask. And one thing that's really important here that you're minimizing because you were involved in it and it's an amazing law. This is an amazing law because this gives the power to the consumer. This says, and it's only, what, in three or four other states that this can happen. In the mm-hmm. other states, it has to come from the medical team. You can, you can talk to your medical team and ask if they'll do it, and if they choose not to, then there you are. You, know, you have to find another route. But in Massachusetts, you as the consumer can say, I want a rapid response. I mean, you have to really know when you need it. And, you know, that may take some 
you know, looking at the situation, for instance, what you just mentioned, the potential for heart attack. If, if, if a family member is exhibiting signs that are progressing or seem to be really bothering the person, putting them in great discomfort, then that may be the time if you're not getting medical response. And that can happen in hospitals. One thing I found is it's very slow response often, unless it's an, an obvious acute emergency. You know, you can, they, they'll just, it's, it's like a, a slow-moving wheel or, you know, just a, like a an, sort of a, an elephant or I'd like to think of my, my big cat who I can't get off the couch half the time, you know, to get the, to get the resident there to evaluate. So I, I really think, you know, this law is, um, is, is very powerful, and a lot of people don't know about it in Massachusetts, but it's very powerful and can really help with uh, patient safety in a medical crisis and help the family. So I have to say a big thank you to you and your your team and, and allies and, you know, co uh, colleagues who had the vision of this for our state, you know, that that was an important part of patient safety. It's a thank you. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, it was a big team that uh, that worked on this, and uh, you know, and I uh, and I appreciate your your uh, underlining all of this. So it's you know confusion or a change in breathing rate, either you know if they're breathing a lot faster for a sustained time or a lot breathing a lot slower for a sustained time. Or they're or they've you know, lost cognition. They're they're talking yeah. off the wall. You know, they 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 have a fever. A lot of times, people I find that where this is really important is when people are septic, meaning that they have a blood infection from whatever, something's got in their blood and it's circulating and their, you know, their whole system is starting to shut down. That, and if nobody's responding to those kind of changes, then, you know, call the rapid response. Get some other eyes on this, you know. And, and the hospitals have to have a rapid response team. Am I correct with that? That they have to have a, a team that's ready to go if it's called. Um, well, we we try to get the word team in the law. It, what it, what's called for are rapid response methods. Now, oh, okay, uh, in in practice, almost all the hospitals have in, have interpreted that so as to call for rapid response teams. What, okay. so, which, so, so it, maybe it's maybe it's uh, maybe it's semantics to some to some extent, um, but uh, but typically it, it is a team of, of people. Okay. That, you know. Um, so it's you know someone who might be from the intensive care unit uh, would come, but it's a, right. they have to be a specially trained uh, group. And it, it okay, doesn't have to be happy, and that yeah. yeah, yeah, and they have to know who they are, right? <laughs> they have I mean, to be trained as to know who they self aware, are. right? It's not just some you know any clinician who you, you know yo you you know right. Right. So well, yeah, it's like a cold blue. You know, you hear cold blue, which is, a, you know, an acute emergency, and that's especially what happens, you know. Every, anybody goes. I mean, when I worked in the hospitals, everybody, you had to go or, you know, so anyway. Um, right, I, and I've been, I mean, I myself have been in, involved in two of them, at, you know, at hospitals, at, you know, as a, as a consultant myself, because everyone, everyone goes. But this is, of course, the rapid response is a different thing. This is before the right, code. Right, and this, and as a, right. Right, this, know, is, this is to the avoid the code. <laughs> is, it, precisely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're, we're um, before this, you know, we, we end today, which is about, we have about 10 minutes, believe it or not. This is so amazing. I could talk all day about this. Um, what I wanted to really, you know, get in is because you've done a lot in your book and just in your work about creating the team. You know, we talk about creating a rapid response team and, you know, the qualifications, you know, that it takes for that. We haven't talked about qualifications, but, you know, what it's part, you know, that means. But what about creating a team for somebody, you know, the doctor and, you know, that's something you've really worked on in your, you know, your book is amazing with tips about it. And, again, people who are listening, you've uh, you got to get his book. And where can you get it? At, at Amazon? Through Amazon? Right. Or if Dolan? You like, yeah, Dolan. There, there, there are different places. There, it's uh, both an e-book and a paperback, uh, whichever you prefer to buy. It's mm -hmm. available at Amazon. It's, it's also available at a discount at the uh, per, through the Professional Patient Advocate Institute, Professional Patient okay. Advocate Institute, uh, so they can yeah. go there if they like. And the, the title is Getting Your Best Healthcare: Real World Stories for Patient Empowerment. And so they're right. It's right. about it's about getting teams. Now, the rapid response team is one kind of team, and that's at really the acute at the emergency level. 
of care. Mm-hmm. But then you can also set up teams that are really way over at the other end, of, you know, when you're not in the hospital, but that you have some kind of health crisis. So there was one example um, of a woman here in Needham, uh, where I work and live, uh, who had come to town when she was about 30 or so. Uh, Penny Gordon was her name. And she lived in Needham for about 15 years or so, worked at the senior center um, in the center of town. And then um, she would belong to a temple, one of the temples in, in Needham, and, um, and got breast cancer. And a good uh-huh. friend of hers uh, became aware of that. Uh, and um, it was a friend through the temple, actually. And so her, her friend Karen Felcher had, uh, had found out about an organization called Lotsa Helping Hands. Um, and they have a website, um, which and the, which the free. It's it's all free, um, and through that, that uh, Karen we kind of coordinated the care for Penny. So Karen served as what's called the coordinator um, uh, there, and so she was able to organize an online calendar so that friends and neighbors, if you know, local family could sign up for time slots to bring a meal over to the house. You know, so that, that website was lots L O T S of helping hands. I, I, I'll spell lots it. Lots of helping. It, it, it's lots of like the slang word lots of. So oh, lots Okay, lots yeah. of helping hands. Right, right. <laughs> okay. So it's, yeah, so it's, it's www dot L O T S A helping okay. hands. Okay. Dot com. Dot com. So there are no dashes. Okay. Lots of helpinghands.com. And so it, it's a way to coordinate a, a community of, of your friends and volunteers, okay, for, um, you know, mm-hmm. who will do what, when. There's a calendar in it. And, you know, and Karen Felcher, the coordinator, had said, well, people really do want to help when something like this happens. You know, they, and mm-hmm. so she said, well, people swarmed to the website and said, so during mm-hmm. this particular summer, it's about three years back now, that uh, so friends had delivered meals for Penny, you know, three times a week. Um, you know, she said, well, at first it was kind of hard to accept the help because she didn't really want to need, admit that she needed help, though, um, you know, though she was very grateful for it. But so people would go grocery shopping for her, you know, and they would, according to lists mm-hmm. that, that she could make up and, and put on the, the site and so forth. So... Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and got, and then her kids needed some rides that normally she would drive in places, and so the, the friends actually helped to pitch in to give, you know, for with carpools and so forth. So, mm-hmm. so this was a way that, uh, so this is a, a free resource on the web, and there's a, um, uh, so there's some stories about that on the uh, on the website as well. But um, mm-hmm. so. You know, this is a, a middle-aged woman, and so that it, it really helped her. Is it? And it's you know, it's helped a couple of my friends as well. Uh, so I I get very religious about this, and and uh, think really think the the world of them. Um, the uh, this organization was started um, by two uh, two entrepreneurs who uh, one the the wife of one of them had uh, had uh, had had uh, fought a long battle with cancer. I believe it was, um, I forget if it was ovarian or cervical cancer. Um, uh, and then um, and the, the two guys were running this computer company, doing very well at it, But they, and they realized that there was really nothing out there that would enable people to organize helpers in this way. And so mm-hmm. being entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. they, they built it. And having already oh, become wealthy fantastic. from their, yeah, having become wealthy already from their work, in uh, building other companies, they said, well, we're just going to do this as a contribution. And so this is they've done this for free. Uh, they, they set it up as a free resource. And now I, I believe um, more than 50,000 people across the country have been helped by this. Um, and with, when you look at the networks of a couple dozen people each, it means more than a million people have helped uh, you know, through, have helped a neighbor or friend or family member through Lots of helping hands. So I think it's wonderful. And so now that's a way to set up a team also, a team of amateurs, mm-hmm. and yet with the right information. And so they, there's a calendar, and then uh, so once you sign up uh, for certain tasks, you then get email reminders the, the, the day before. You know, you get reminders to do it, okay? Mm-hmm. 
Wow. And then, so, so and then, that, so. as you said, that's that's one aspect of of, of the team of of creating your team and. You know, from right. from t- speaking with you and 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 having a few coffees with you over over the years, um, uh, you're very you you find you've really created this idea of teams that healthcare is not about just the doctor or the nurse, you know the it's about your team getting that whole team in place and feeling comfortable with that team, and feeling exactly. that you can communicate with that team. Right. Right, and that's now there, you know, and, and one of the, the ways that I make that case or that I make that persuasive is early in the book I talked about Michael, Jack, Michael Jackson's story and because mm-hmm. Michael had, had hired a, a doctor. He had his personal physician who was right there, you know, always at Michael's beck and call, and Michael paid him $250,000 a month, if you can believe it, nice. um, but, uh, but didn't really have a team. And so this doctor acted solo and, you know, didn't really use a computer, uh, which should be a member, I think, of like an R2-D2 in Star Wars, you know, the, uh, like there should be a computer member of your team, okay, sitting there, you know, plugged in, right? But So this doctor didn't use a computer, you know, didn't use uh, nurses or other uh, assistants and wound up, you know, giving Michael a, to, to help him get to sleep, um, gave him a, a drug that really should only be given, you know, in hospitals intravenously. Propofol uh, is, is the drug, and, and the coroner's exam later revealed that an interaction, a drug-drug interaction uh, between the, uh-huh. the propofol uh, and, a, and a, another a tranquilizer that Michael had been given, that that led to Michael's death. And so that I think is is is, the, is not having a team. You know, Michael relied on having this great doctor and i think that's what a lot of us do that we think well we have a doctor who we think is really smart and really caring and thoughtful and you know and and hardworking and most and which almost all doctors are and yet you need more than a great doctor you need a team well it's a lot to ask one person to be all that at all time when you need them Exactly. It's too much. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's superhuman. Yeah. It's asking them to be superhuman, and they're 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 great, but they're not superhuman. So they right. need the right. you know. Right. So you know. So we say, well, doctor knows best. Well, yes, doctor. You know, doctor knows best about medicine, and and you yourself know the most about yourself. You know, and your family member knows lots about you. So together, you know, I really want to encourage people to to use that kind of partnership and to think of themselves as as full partners with their doctors. Okay. I can't believe this, but we have a little over um, two minutes left. Um, and I, I always ask, you know, the people, I guess, on my show is for if you could give just, you know, your best advice. Uh, I don't know if you want. You can give it, you know, in terms of patient safety and in terms of the team. You know, what uh, what, what? just quick tip, you know, in two minutes or less. <laughs> what what, so, you know, what uh, you well, can advise on people foot. on? Yeah, well, this is all, all of these things, and and uh, you know, and there are a lot more stories on the blog. There are you know, eight hundred stories in the blog, and there's a, you know, my book has has, has is, is mostly new. It's mostly not been uh, from stories in the blog. So there's there's so much to uh, to learn. It's that it's it, it's partly about individual tips, and it, but it's partly about a mindset. You know, a general mindset of being empowered. And what that's about, mm-hmm. and that takes time, I think, to learn. And I, I think of like mm-hmm. it, it's like in karate, where you know there are different belts, and as you advance and you study mm-hmm. and you practice through your whole life, that you you get you know higher and higher belts, and you get you know then black belts, and there are different <laughs> degrees of black belts. But kind of think of that. This is kind of like that, and, and that you can start anywhere. You know, start where you are uh-huh. now, and that uh-huh. you, you do need to learn. So so you do need to become mindful and empowered. Uh, you need to and you can. Okay. Well, that's that's really great advice. And we, I encourage, I, I think we've given people a lot of hints or advice on today on how to be empowered, you know, how to walk it, you know, how to, what to do in the hospital. And, you know, there's just so much, but I, I, I think that that's, really good i like that idea of the karate you know the the belts you know it takes time but you can do it just keep just keep asking those questions you know that is really it 
So I'd really like to thank you, Ken, for taking the time. And um, again, I encourage everybody to get this book, the book Getting Your Best Health Care, Real World Stories for Patient Empowerment, and, con- and continue to learn. So thank you very much. And keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> you t- and you too, Hari. And, and uh, you're okay. very welcome. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate talking. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.